Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival Curiosity Lecture Series. Before we begin our session this morning, I'd like to acknowledge that when we gather here, we are meeting on the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to their ancestors and elders, past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today, we're going to be hearing from Fiona Murphy. Fiona Murphy is an award-winning deaf writer based in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, The Griffith Review, The Age, Kill Your Darlings, The Big Issue, among many other publications. Her memoir, The Shape of Sound, was released in March last year. It explores secrets, deaf identity, and sign language. Today, Fiona is going to be speaking about her first year of work as a physiotherapist, when a patient asked her, how does it feel to be nothing more than a glorified walking stick? In some ways, the work of a physiotherapist appears passive, congenial even, involving gentle walks and small talk. But they are primed to catch any signs of distress or fatigue and predict the likelihood of a fall before it happens. In this insightful lecture, Fiona examines bodies, ageing, fear and falling. And now, I'd like to hand over to Fiona. Please welcome Fiona to the stage. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. And I also wish to pay my respects. Um, I wrote this lecture on the lands of the Darragan Gundungara people. Have you ever seen a person fall? In the preceding seconds, a ripple of instability judders through a person's body. Muscles twitch knees slacken. Fear, an igniting force, terrible and scorching, catches in a person's eyes. There is a mad rush for safety, hands reaching for something sturdy, a door frame, the kitchen counter, a towel rail, the arm of another, anything to withstand the downwards drag of gravity. But it's too late. The body buckles, slips, tumbles onto the ground. To see someone on the floor is, after a fall is deeply unsettling. To experience a fall can be a traumatising, life-altering event. And falls are common. One in three people aged 65 and over fall at least once a year. This climbs to one in two people aged 85 and older. Fall-related injuries represent the single largest cause for hospital admissions in Australia. They are the leading cause of injury-related deaths, far outstripping motor vehicle fatalities. Let's put those stats into context. In Australia, during the period of 2017 to 2018, 
falls resulted in almost 223,000 hospital admissions and more than 5,100 injury-related deaths. Falls are estimated to cost the Australian healthcare system $3.9 billion just in the period of 2015 to 2016 alone. This is just not a crisis for us. Globally, 684,000 people die each year from falls. Worryingly, these statistics are predicted to increase, with some researchers dubbing falls the new pandemic in the post-COVID-19 era. And yet, most people, including frequent fallers, consider falls to be a normal part of ageing. They are not. Extensive research shows that many falls among older people can be prevented. Today, I'll be debunking some common myths about falls, and perhaps, by the end of this lecture, you may be able to save the life of a loved one, or even your own. Who am I? Like many writers, I have a day job to pay the bills. I'm lucky. My job as a community physiotherapist brings me into people's homes. It brings me into people's lives. Just the other week, a client beckoned me to follow him. Come see the pool, he said. He shuffled down the corridor, pushing his walker, and led me out onto the balcony, which overlooked the smooth curve of a kidney-shaped swimming pool. The water was a dark murk, completely impenetrable, despite the abundant sunlight. My client's wife joined us at the balcony railing. They both murmured with deep appreciation as they gazed down at the frankly disgusting swimming pool. And then she reached into a nearby plastic bucket. With a loaded fist, she threw pellets over the balcony railing. The water churned. There was a riot of movement. Bursts of orange as hundreds of koi, bodies slick and sliding over one another, swam with their mouths open, guzzling down the food. I turned towards the couple, my joy uncontained. But there's so many of them, I said. Well, they do breathe, sweetheart. When making my decision about what to study, I didn't know anything about the profession. It was my mother, an enrolled nurse, who suggested I would earn the big bucks as a physiotherapist. She argued that there will always be sick people, and once I learned how to use my hands, nobody could ever take that away from me. She convinced me, wholly and completely. And in doing so, conveniently secured herself a lifetime of free remedial massage. They say one of the benefits of working in healthcare, unlike other professions, is that you can't take your work home with you. That once you leave the clinic or hospital ward, you can switch off. That is not true at all. Each day as I drive through the streets of Western Sydney, passing the houses I've entered before, I think about, I fret about the people inside. Those who live alone, those who have become increasingly frail during the pandemic, and I think about 
I worry about whether they are lying on the floor. Myth number one, falls happen to other people. A few years ago, I was doing an initial assessment with a lady who'd just been referred to the Falls Prevention Service. Let's call her Mabel. Mabel readily answered my questions about her medical history, her home life, her hobbies, her exercise habits. She spoke with a breezy confidence and ease. Despite this, I still paused before asking my next question, as I'd seen it provoke reactions of shame, anger, and embarrassment. Mabel, how many falls have you had in the past 12 months? I've only had the one fall, she said. It had occurred in a shopping centre car park and resulted in a fush fracture, which is a shorthand way of saying a fall onto an outstretched hand. The ED nurse had referred her to the falls prevention clinic for follow-up. So you've had just the one fall? Yes. Excellent, I thought. The chances for success are remarkably higher when somebody is reviewed following just one fall. I continued to ask her dozens of questions such as, do you have any issues with your feet such as corns, bunions, swelling? When did you last have your eyes tested? Do you have glaucoma, macular degeneration, cataracts? How many standard drinks have you had in the past week? Has your appetite changed in the past 12 months? Have you lost any weight? What is your date of birth? Who am I? Where are we? What years were the First World War? Who is the current Prime Minister of Australia? Can you count backwards from 20? How many times do you go to the bathroom each night? On and on with the questions. Afterwards, I assessed Mabel's balance and prescribed a set of exercises she could do whilst waiting for the kettle to boil. We booked a follow-up appointment. Then, once a fortnight, over the next few months, Mabel would pop back into the clinic so I could review and progress her exercises. At the beginning of each session, I always asked the same question. Have you had any falls since I've seen you last? Mabel would always cheerily reply, no, 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 I've only just had the one. Eventually, some three months after her initial assessment, Mabel arrived about five minutes late to her session. Sorry I'm late, she said. I had trouble with the doona again. What do you mean? Well, it sort of gets tangled around my legs when I'm changing the sheets. Mabel, can you tell me exactly what you mean? Well, the doona always gets twisted and I land on my knees. Mabel pantomimed the process of changing the bed. Mabel, how often does this happen? Every time I make the bed. So you fall down every time. No, I don't fall, I land on my knees. Mabel had been falling almost daily, but didn't recognise it to be a fall because she could get back up. Research predicts that up to 75% of falls go unreported. This could be in part due to people not recognising that they have had a fall, or because of the misconceptions related to falls, 
or simply people do not want to experience the stigma associated with falls and falling. This stigma can be complex. An Australian research study found that a large proportion of older people didn't consider themselves to be, quote, the type to fall, whom they viewed those people negatively, despite having personally experienced a fall in the recent past. Just to be clear, a fall is, by its very definition, an event which results in a person coming to rest inadvertently on the ground or floor or any other lower height. This can include collapsing into a chair or flopping onto a bed. I've learned to be careful when asking questions, broadening my language and approach. Have you ever had a trip, a stumble, a wobble? Have you ever had to catch yourself, stop yourself from landing on the ground? Anything to open up the conversation a little bit more. <clears throat> Myth number two. It was just a small fall. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as a small fall. Even if someone doesn't sustain any physical injuries, the consequences of a fall can be complex and if left unaddressed, can be cascading. You see, a person's risk of falling exponentially increases as soon as they experience a fall, a single fall. A person shifts within themselves, physically and psychologically, often without their conscious awareness. The first balance test I often do is to simply ask if someone can stand with their feet placed together side by side. Of course, before I ask this, I always instruct the person to stand in the corner of their kitchen, the counters within easy reach, and then I stand in front, arms alert, ready to catch. How someone responds to this request gives me immense insight into their abilities to balance. It informs what test I will do next how much risk will be appropriate to take with the increasingly difficult balance tasks. Whether the client is aware of it or not, their brain is also calculating the risks. The brain's priority is to preserve energy, to take the easy way rather than any risky or cognitively taxing pathway. Staying balanced and upright is a complex skill it can place huge demands on an individual. And so, to preserve energy, a person's stance will widen. They will subconsciously avoid narrowing their base of support. Often someone will say, it's been years since I've stood like this. Is it really quite necessary? Their gait will change. Strides shrinking, heel strike reducing, and arm swing disappearing or to translate, a person with compromised balance will begin to appear flat-footed. Eventually, they may begin to shuffle and slow down. Anything to keep their feet in contact with the ground. And all of this can begin to happen even after one fall. As you might forget about that trip or slip or tumble, but your brain hasn't. 
Myth number three. I don't need to talk about falling, it will just worry my family. Falls are associated with a reduced quality of life, as well as an increase in loneliness and social isolation. When writing my memoir, The Shape of Sound, which explores my experiences of hearing loss, I did a tremendous amount of research into secrets. I had kept my deafness a secret for over 20 years. At the time, this felt sensible and even an empowering decision. I didn't need to tell anyone, I thought. I can just figure this out on my own. I also thought, in equal measure, what if I did tell people I can't hear so well? Would they trust me? Would they exclude me? Would I be left out? These became strikingly self-fulfilling prophecies, as in order to keep my secret, I needed to keep my distance. I pulled away and gradually slid into a state of loneliness and self-isolation. A secret is never a benign choice. Research shows that secrets have physical properties. When we carry a secret, it literally weighs the body down. Research shows those who do carry a secret walk with more effort. Distances appear further, hills appear steeper. The body is burdened. Many people hide their falls from friends and family. This can have an immense and physiological impact. A common consequence of having a fall is developing a fear of falling, which becomes a huge risk of having more falls. Fear is a force which is shape-shifting and has recursive qualities. It roams, it surges, it calculates. During instances of uncertainty, it can roar through the body a feeling of calamity, of threat, of trembling terror. Fear also festers if left unchecked. It thrives in secret, eroding and weakening with devastating effect. Talking about one's fears, including whether you have a fear of falling, reduces the burden. Normalizing a fear of falling can, in some instances, even allow a conversation to begin. From there, we can begin to plan how to avoid more falls from happening. That must have been a shock, I say, after someone tells me they've had a fall. It's normal to feel nervous, I say. In fact, I'll add, a feeling of uncertainty in small quantities can be useful. In fact, it can be an essential and life-saving force. Myth number four. I'm not worried about falling. I can just pull myself back up. Not everyone experiences a fear of falling following a fall. This too can become a risk factor, which by now I'm sure you're all beginning to see how complex, how multifactorial falls can be. Not having any degree of uncertainty following a fall can indicate a lack of insight. Often, when retraining someone's balance, the process involves educating someone about how to listen to their 
instincts again and trust them. We all get that gut feeling, that sixth sense of unease, that moment of hesitancy when we know we're about to do something that's risky. It needs to be listened to. It is the unconscious brain delivering its risk assessment. And this is something that we'll return to. But for now, let's focus on the idea of someone just pulling themselves up. This is also a skill I train people in. It's a rigorous process of both building up someone's upper and lower body strength, as well as considering the layout of their home and what piece of furniture is sturdy and stable enough to allow someone to pull themselves up and what to do once they have gotten themselves off the ground. But before all of this, before I train someone to have the ability to get themselves back up, we always talk about having a falls plan. Not just a falls prevention plan, but a plan about what to do when a fall does occur. These are frank and strategic conversations. They can make the difference between life and death. The cellular structure of the body, with its quiet, complex architecture, interwoven and pulsating, can begin to unravel with frightening speed. This can occur if someone experiences a long lie. The body begins to break down. How long is long? 60 minutes, one hour, the length of a television show. A study of 125 adults aged over 65 found that half of those who had lay on the ground for more than one hour went on to die within the following six months, even without a direct injury from the fall itself. This is serious business. I've heard stories of people having long lives that far exceed one hour, of people lying in the sun for several hours at a stretch of a client having collapsed onto her toilet, was stuck there for 12 hours, her skin excoriated from the plastic seat. And most recently, a colleague telling me of a client who was on the floor for three days. She survived, which is truly an astonishing feat. Part of the plans that we make in the clinic is ensuring that someone has, if they do have a fall, that they're not down for long. Whether it is setting up a personal alarm system or if they can't afford one, they may choose to carry their home phone with them, cordless, or their mobile phone with them at all times. Or they may apply for the Red Cross Telecross service which is a free daily phone call to check in on people who live alone just to make sure that they are okay. Or whether they wish to set up a system of friends and family and service providers dropping in on a regular basis. Each plan is individualised. Each plan is essential. Myth number five. If I just sit still and watch myself... I'll be fine. Following a fall or a series of falls, tasks that were once done without conscious effort to the degree that they weren't even considered a task now take on a complexity. 
walking in the garden, prepping the evening meal, showering, getting in and out of bed. The electric fear of knowing something is not just implausible, but a real tangible risk can be exhausting. People begin to avoid doing things and going places. A person can become timid in their own home, frightened even. Doors close, rooms are no longer entered. Entire levels of houses are trespassed only by moths and dust mites. Myth number six, once your balance goes, it's gone for good. How do we reduce falls? The interventions can range from the simple to the complex, depending on the circumstances. For instance, it could be adjusting or removing environmental hazards, which can encompass anything from a raggedy old bathroom mat or completely gutting the bathroom and starting over. Even exercises need to be tailored to the individual. There is an infamous research study that looked at reducing the risk of falls by targeting sedentary behaviour. The researchers educated and encouraged the research participants to get out there, go for a walk today, explore your neighbourhood. The results were disastrous, with a dramatic increase in falls. This blanket advice was inviting risk into people's lives who were already deemed a high risk of falling. Exercise prescription needs to be tailored to the individual. The wonderful news is that balance can improve with practice. Balance is all about problem solving. It engages the brain. Balance exercises should cause someone to have to focus and concentrate but not to feel fearful or overwhelmed because nobody learns how to problem solve in a state of fear or crisis. The exciting thing is that for many people, it doesn't take months to see improvements. It can happen within a few minutes. There is a luminosity that comes with confidence. Unfortunately, preventative healthcare is grossly underfunded in Australia accessing balanced training and falls prevention can be difficult. I used to work as a falls prevention physiotherapist in regional New South Wales. My referral area, which I was responsible for, was the size of England. Myth number seven. Once you start using walking aids, you've given up. Many people resist mobility aids, walkers and walking sticks, viewing it as an act of forfeiting their freedom. Many tell me with resolute voices that they don't want to become dependent on those contraptions, that they aren't ready to give up. When I walk through houses, I often see the walls a mess of fingerprints, the corners of door frames flecked of paint and smoothed down like worry stones. One client, a man who used to break horses for a living, had redesigned his homestead, making the hallways exceptionally narrow so that he could walk with hands spanned wide, steadying himself on the walls. The kitchen counters were extraordinarily high and topped with thick slabs of stone so he could coast along, clutching the edge. 
he had bought a high-backed leather couch and had his sons plonk it in the middle of the living room. His fingers would curl around the thick padded top as he surfed along beside it. And yet he still fell almost weekly. The nighttime journey from his bed to the bathroom at four metres at most was perilous. There are no grab holes, nothing he could hook his fingers onto. As I watched him move around his home, his fear was acute and riven on his face. Outside, he would use a garden stake to steady himself when walking. Following extensive musculoskeletal and balance assessments, I determined that he would be the safest using a four-wheel walker. However, the changes to his house, the narrow hallways, the tightly cornered kitchen, made it impossible to navigate with a walking frame. His next best option would be a walking stick. Despite speaking about that garden stake with great affection, he refused, even in the privacy of his own home, to contemplate using a walking stick. Recently, I heard a similar story, albeit splashed across the Daily Mail and the Mirror. According to sources close to the Queen, she is, quote, now using a wheelchair but is too proud to be seen using it. I read dozens of articles, including sources claiming that she considers the look undignified and weak. According to the Daily Beast, quote, her wheelchair use is understood to be witnessed only by the intensely loyal subgroup of the already small, hand-picked cadre of staff nicknamed HMS Bubble, who now attend to and interact with the Queen on a daily basis, the source said. This reluctance to use mobility aids is complex. I have seen families fight over it openly and at length. I've been asked to participate in fights, worried children in their 40s, 50s and 60s saying, you need to convince mum to use the walker, okay? She just won't listen to anyone. Or vexed spouses sighing and storming out of the room. It's a complex conversation that needs the time to be explored. But the correct mobility aid can enhance someone's life, open up possibilities, improve their function, their delight, the engagement with the wider world. And now to the final myth, myth number eight. Falls are an individual's problem. It's estimated that there, if there was an immediate clinical application of all the body of knowledge regarding falls, the incidence of falls would be immediately reduced by 25%. A lot of research has been done. But despite the abundance of research in this area and public health promotion, the reductions in fall rates remained largely unchanged and have been largely unchanged for decades. What's going wrong? I've spent the majority of my working life with people aged in their 70s, 80s and 90s, and it has been wonderful in all the ways you can expect. We tease and mock one another and nobody gets embarrassed if you accidentally let rip with motion. Research shows that falling can pose a threat to identity. How we talk about bodies, 
ageing, disability and disease needs to change. We've been taught that independence is a sign of success, a state that must be reached quickly in one's life and feverishly grasped onto. We've not been taught to value interdependence as being an essential, joyous and valuable state of being. And we don't just need to celebrate the idea of interdependence on a cultural level, we need it enshrined in public policy. Our aged care system is grossly underfunded. Our cities, communities and public transport are wholly inaccessible. There is a lack of safe and suitable footpaths, accessible bathrooms and car spaces throughout our cities and towns. Many places still haven't returned public seating since the pandemic began. Housing is a significant issue, with many trapped in large homes because they fear that downsizing will mean entering an aged care system that will not support them. I get quite emotional, I just want to think about this. It's a complex problem that we should all think about together. Thank you. Thank you, Fiona, and thank you for coming along to the first of our Curiosity Lectures today. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.